So we're talking about what we really need, and uh, that is uh, that that title is a title for. A study of the prayers that we find in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And the basic idea of our study is if we find Paul telling us how he prays for the church in the inspired Scripture, then that might indicate to us something that the church really needs. Because he's looking to God to give it to us. And also, we're since for a while now, we've been looking at the, this prayer of Jesus, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. So if Jesus is praying for the church, for his disciples, by extension for us, whatever he's asking God to give us, must be something that we actually need. And I think we can be confident that the, it is something that God will actually give. Because Jesus, of course, prays according to the Father's will. I've discovered that if you ask people to give you something they intend to give you anyway, the answer will probably be yes. So when Jesus prays, He's, his prayers are reflections of something God already desires. He is God. He's one with the Father. Uh, and so we can be confident that the answer will be positive. Uh, at the same time, we might take the occasion to observe that whatever it is he's asking for must be something we really need. We need God to provide. The other thing we come in here at the end and usually say is, by the way, let's remember, this is something we pray for, not something we do. Often we pray in a way that is more like praying to ourselves that we are praying in a way that says, I'm going to, and it's sort of like, Lord, uh, bless me to carry out my own personal agenda. Uh, and in these things, we think, well, the whole point of prayer is to look to God as the provider. And one of the things we learn from Christ and in our relation to Christ is that we are always in the position of being provided for. We, in relation to God, are never the provider. Even when we behave in a way that pleases God, we're doing so out of his provision, not our own. We're not giving him something he wouldn't get we don't act. He's, uh, he doesn't need anything. Uh, he's the provider. So one of the things we come to realize in coming to Christ is we're always only a reflection of what God provides. If I provide something, it's because I have been provided for. Well, Sorry, that was a bit of a ramble. I wanted to start today by talking about <clears throat> various ways people approach God. And uh, some people approach God as the demanding king that must be obeyed. We relate to God as ruler and under law. That's one way people God. I will do what he commands, and so I will be okay with him. Another way is uh, sort of like that, only it kind of flips the table. <laughs> and we, some people approach God as something like a life coach. God wants you to succeed. 
And so we uh, look to God as kind of our life coach. He's going to help me succeed in whatever my goals are. And uh, as long as I have good goals, he'll, be, he'll go along with this plan. And, or uh, this is also kind of like treating God like he's your personal assistant. And uh, so that is actually kind of a similar thing, only it sort of turns over who's the most important here. The demanding king is clearly the most important, and i got to do what he says so he doesn't punish me. The life coach, uh, well, I'm, God's loving, right? So he wants, what, he wants what's best for me, so he wants me to succeed. Yeah, and so he gives me good advice. Uh, another approach that people often take, Christians especially, especially evangelical Christians, is we think of God more like a general commander, on a mission. He's our mission director. So he's given us a mission. We're carrying out his mission and he's empowering us to carry out his mission. Now, all that's true in a certain respect, but sometimes this is our primary way of approaching God. What I want to notice today is that when Jesus prays, in John 17, none of those approaches fit this prayer. None of them. It's not our obedience to God's law that he asks for. Father, make them obedient. Doesn't say that. Uh, It's not our following of God's good advice. Father, Give them wisdom. Hmm. Doesn't say that. Uh, And it's not our commitment or service to God's mission. Now he does say, the way you sent me, I'm sending them. He does mention that. Yeah. But what is the thing he asks for? Well, We've gone through several things. First of all, he asked that God would glorify the Son, and that was a reference to the cross. Then he asked God, Father, glorify me, and we noticed that that was a reference to his ascension. He says, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. So that's about his return to the right hand of the Father in heaven, now as a man. Glorified me. That's so his ascension, his coronation as king. Then he asks that the Father would keep us. That's like a shepherding term. Keep us, shelter us, take care of us, watch over us, keep us reserved to himself. Then he asked that we, that the Father would sanctify us in the truth, set us apart, that is, out of the world, in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. And so your word, in the context of the book of John, is as much a reference to Jesus, the Son incarnate, as it is to the Scripture. So when the Father sanctifies us, In his word, he's sanctifying us in Christ. The truth. So we're now in him sanctified. And then uh, we notice, we talked about this last time, that they may all be one. So he's asking for oneness among the disciples. So that's where we're starting today, that they may all be one. And he says one, like the Father is one, in the Son. What an odd way of saying it. In the the Father is one in the Son. Not with, in. 
curious. Uh, and then he says that they would be one in the Father and the Son, them in us. So now it's not just we're one the same way the Father and the Son are one. We're also one in them and they're in us. There's a lot of this inness going on. So this oneness is some sort of union. This is actually a very important theological concept called our union with Christ. We're not, we don't just agree with Christ. We are in Christ. That's a, that's a very significant thing. And I'm in Christ, you're in Christ, we're in Christ, and in Christ, we're in one another. We have a fellowship in the Spirit that is like the fellowship that Jesus, the Son of God, the man, Jesus experienced by the Spirit in and with the Father. How is the Father in the Son? He gave the Spirit without measure, according to the chapter 3 in John. Hmm. Okay, so this is kind of a deep concept. And it's a bit mystical. It's, it, it's, uh, it's like explaining the Trinity. In fact, it is exactly like explaining the Trinity. Because it is the same thing that is happening in the Trinity that now is extended to include those who trust in Christ, those who are in Christ. Wow. So the Christian faith actually restores us into fellowship with God in Christ by the Spirit. So fellowship with the Father in the Son by the Spirit. We are now included in the eternal fellowship. In. That's, what, that's the oneness we're talking about. And then he says, the last time, he says, one, perfected into one. <laughs> perfected into one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in one. This text says unity, but the word is literally one. Now, you can take this a couple of different ways. You could take it to mean where we have perfect oneness, or you could take it to mean the key to our completion, our perfection, is in our oneness. And the Language here could go either way. I, when that happens, I like to go both and, though that's probably not really legitimate, but it's probably one or the other that John intended when he wrote this, but I don't know which one. It could mean that our perfection in Christ is in our growing oneness with him and with each other. Or... It could mean that he has in mind the goal that our oneness would be perfected, complete. Well, either way, you know, it's just kind of a... Maybe you're talking about the same thing anyway. Um, now, there's a purpose for all this oneness. That is that the world may believe that you, Father, sent me the Son. So our oneness is our testimony of the divine nature of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. How did that, what's the end of that sentence? If you love each other. The, uh, the exhibition of our union with Christ in our union with each other. And that is 
how the world can see that Jesus is the eternal Son of God made flesh. Wow. So it's kind of important. Also, he says, so that the world may know, this is a little later on in this text, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. You just got to think about that for a second. The Father, the eternal Father, God, has loved them just as he has loved the eternal Son. (laughs) Okay, that's a big deal. That That is huge. Well, here's the thing about this oneness. You could say it like this, that you have loved them in your love for me because we are in him. So when the father loves his son, he loves you because you're in his son and we're going to see how this plays out. So the Father's love displayed in sending his Son is also evident in our unity, which is a fellowship of sacrificial love. And that is glory. That is a reflection when Jesus says, glorify the Son, glorify your Son. He's talking about the glory of the cross that provides us with eternal life that brings us into this union in the triune God. So the the concept of union with Christ and union with God in Christ by the Spirit is one way of saying Saved. Well, he asked the question, how are you saved? One really good answer to that question is, you are saved in union with Christ. And we're going to see this very clearly. Now, he goes on to say this next prayer request that that they may all be one, and then he says that they may be with me where I am. Now, that's evidently Jesus is talking about uh, the future. He's departing. He's been talking about that. He's going. He's going to prepare a place. It's said at the beginning of this speech. He's going to prepare a place and then he's going to come again so that you can be with me. But one of the things we want to notice here is to be with him where he is is another expression of this oneness. How is it that we are with him? How is it? Uh, Well, if we looked at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It is fitting for him, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, that we may be with him where he is, 
Now, you can see this playing out in the timeline of the word of the scripture. <laughs> you can see that we are, our oneness with him extends into the past, something that has already been made. In fact, Ephesians 1, 4 says, he has chosen us in him, that's the key, in him, in Christ. God the Father has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So our union with Christ was established before we were. Uh, in the eternal decree of God, in his own inter-Trinitarian determination. He chose us in Christ. He sees, he saw you in him then. Okay? Then if we looked at Romans 6, we find another point in which we were with Christ or in Christ or united to Christ. In Romans 6, this is Paul talking, answering the question, so if, if grace is so good that you can't out-sin it, why not sin your head off? And Paul says, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And then he doesn't preach the law to them again, he preaches grace harder. But in any case, this is in that context, where he says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we were united with him, and the act of baptism is an emblem of that union with him in death. Then he goes on, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now who has died? You. Me. Anyone who is in Christ, because we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and so when Christ died, you died. In your union with Christ, you died. And so you have been set free from the dominion of sin. That's the argument of this text. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. <clears throat> I went past where I thought I was going to, but uh, our old self is crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we may no longer be slaves to sin. So we died with him, and we were raised with him, in him, in our union with him, God's execution of judgment on the sinfulness of man, including me, was in the death of Christ, and in my union with Christ in that death. Wow. In Galatians chapter 2, there's a famous memory verse. It begins with this sort of bold statement. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. So when were we with him where he was? When he died on the cross. Uh, this, this is something that already has occurred. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We're 
talking about the same sort of union where it's him and me and I'm in him. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in the crucifixion of Christ, this union uh, is established or was already established and is makes us participants in his death. So that God's judgment for your sin has been carried out in his death. In Ephesians chapter 2, a couple pages on, we read this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. So here you see this idea of our union with Christ and our salvation being like two terms for the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Already seated with him in the heavenly places. In Christ you are before the throne of God. This is the basis from which the book of Hebrews argues to come boldly before the throne of grace. You have access to God, the Father, in Him. Because He's your high priest, because He died in, in you, in Him. And so, there you are. In uh, Romans 8, famous verse, there is therefore now no condemnation to who? There is therefore now no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ. In him. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. <clears throat> so already, all of that, that's all in the past tense. That's all things that happened either before God created anything or when Christ died for us and rose and ascended. What about now? Hebrews Therefore, he is, also, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus saved you, and Jesus is saving you. And that is wrapped up in your being with him, really, in him, and him in you. In uh, chapter 10, <clears throat> Hebrews, uh, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in our union with Christ, we draw near to God. We come before God with Him. 
And we could go into the throne room of God and, you know, God could legitimately say, what are you doing in here? We don't have to, we don't let sinners in here. God doesn't do that. Because Jesus is there, he's with me. He's with me. So one answer to this prayer is in Jesus' intercession before the throne of God, where you are also invited to attend. So we come boldly before the throne of grace for mercy, to seek help in time of need. All of that in him. In 1 John chapter 1, um, one of my goals here is to just point out to you that this is all over the New Testament. This is the opening of the book of 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's a reference to Jesus. And the life was manifested and we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us that we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, oneness, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is announcing the availability of fellowship with the living God in the Son. Hmm. 2 Corinthians 1, 18 to 20, this is the passage where Jesus says, or where Paul writes, all the promises of God in him are yes. How do you receive the promises of God in him? In your union with him. Now there's another aspect of this here and now, oneness, this here and now with him. And that is, uh, we can learn about that in Romans 8. We go back there, verse 9. And really, the whole chapter is about this. You are not, this is Romans 8, 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, this is the first time we've mentioned, well, it's not the first time we've mentioned it, but this is where the role of the Holy Spirit is getting now kind of explicit in this union thing. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So, everyone who belongs to Christ has the Spirit of Christ. Now, there are some people chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that this hasn't happened to yet. When I was converted, the Spirit regenerated me, gave me the new birth, so I trusted in Christ, and was in that instant experiencing union with Christ in that new way, this way, the Spirit dwelling in me. All right, <clears throat> sorry. If Christ is in you, well, now wait, is he talking about the Spirit or Christ? Uh-huh. How is Christ in you? In the person of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ. Okay, so if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now this is more kind of a detail on that, how did you die or raised again, but anyway. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. <clears throat> so one of the ways we are with Christ is in the presence of Christ in the person of the spirit who dwells in us in faith. This is a union with Christ. 
If you ask the question, how did Jesus the man experience his union with the Father? The answer is through the ministry of the Spirit. And the same is true of you in him. <clears throat> in these other passages, Philippians 3, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, John 12, these passages are about how uh, how this union with Christ leads us into a life of sacrificial love. In Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. In other words, I want to be united to Christ. I want the, the thing is to know Christ. The prize of all humanity is to know Jesus, to know the Son of God, to know God in the Son by the Spirit. And I want that so desperately, I even want to know what it was like for him to die for our sins. I want to somehow suffer for the love of another person because that is a way in which I can fellowship with Jesus. Well, that means he really did believe fellowship with Jesus was the prize. He wasn't kidding around when he said, I've given up anything else to know him. To know him. To know him. Second Corinthians, he talks about carrying around in our bodies <coughs> the death of Christ so that we might know the life of Jesus, the eternal Son of God made man, was, is, the sort of person who dies for the benefit of others. And so, in our union with him, we become sacrificially loving people. Now, I can't atone for anyone else's sins, but I can love somebody, I can do what's good for somebody at my expense. In any number of ways, I can become giving, generous, sacrificially so. I can go without so that someone else can go with. I can take whatever resources God provides to me and provide them, and so become this sort of reflection of God's gracious nature. Now that involves some pain. At least the pain of going without. Uh, but this is the life in the Spirit. This is the way we exhibit one body. We serve one another. We submit to one another. We are humbling ourselves as Christ loved, esteeming others more highly than ourselves, as Paul says in Philippians 2. John 12 is the passage where Jesus is starting to talk about how he's going to die, and he talks about a seed, if it just remains a seed, though, that's no good. It has to go in the ground and die. And then it becomes a multiplicity of seeds. And then he connects that to the disciples. And he talks about, you know, if you're going to be with me, this is how this goes. Do we prize Christ to such a degree as Paul? Do we see the value of union with Christ so completely that we want to know what it's like to suffer for someone else's sake? Hmm. That's a challenge. But this is part of our union, part of our oneness, part of being with him. What happened when they came and arrested Jesus? Do all these guys Jesus praying this for? They ran away. They ran away. 
They did not want to be with him in that. And when Jesus went back and he got Peter, you know, at the fishing, at the fishing breakfast, the fisherman's breakfast, and said, Peter, do you love me? He asked him this enough times that Peter got mad at him. And then, this is in John 21. Then he talks to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and go around wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And John comments, says, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Come with me. Be with me where I am. And in Peter's case, that literally meant on the cross. And Peter turned around and sees John and says, what about him? <laughs> Peter wants to spread out the suffering a little bit. Jesus basically says, mind your own business. Jesus basically says, mind your own business. But, uh, yeah. If, you, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. You follow me. And Jesus prays this prayer at the end of the book of John, that they would be with me where I am. This is part of where it is. So in the here and now, we have this access to the Father, this fellowship with God, and we have life in the Spirit, which does mean a life of sacrificial love, exhibiting the love we have received. <clears throat> now that's challenging, but here's the thing about it. It's empowering. This isn't something you can put on. This isn't something you possess. This is the work of the Spirit in you. It is Christ in you that loves people this way. It's, it's when you know the love that you share the love. It's not a resource you can drum up on your own. And the desire for it is not a resource that you drum up on your own either. Well, what about the yet to come? In Philippians 1.23... Paul is having a debate with himself because he's in a Roman prison and it might kill him. That's possible. Gotta remember where Philippians is. So in Philippians 1.23 says, I'm going to start with verse 21. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know what I want to choose. Like, it's not really his choice, but he's saying, I, I can't say which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart. That means die and be with Christ. So Paul understood that if he were to die, he would be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is very much better, he says. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So he ends up saying, I'm pretty sure I'm going to remain on in the flesh. And so to live is Christ. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. <clears throat> it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. To live is Christ. To live is his ongoing exhibition of 
the sacrificial love of Christ, and in, in this case, it's related to the Philippians. <clears throat> okay, so when I die, with him, where he is. But that's not even the end of the story. In John 14, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, where I am, you may be also. So the prayer is that they would be with me where I am. So when Christ comes, we will be with him. That, this will be the culmination of God's answer to this prayer. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you have this passage that we come in commonly describing events we commonly call the rapture, where those who are dead in Christ are raised, and whoever's alive in Christ, then follow them to be with him. And so we will always be with him after that. <clears throat> in Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul says, uh, I gotta read it. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, have been, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. You've died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's all that oneness, same thing. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So when Christ comes, there, then we are going to experience this union with Christ in a whole new way. <clears throat> First John chapter 3, one of my favorite texts in the Bible. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now, already, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is with him where he is. So there's a already aspect that goes all the way back before creation, then his weird, our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, even in his ascension, so that we now, in the here and now, have access to the Father in him, together with him, we can stand in the presence of God and we have life in the Spirit. In fact, if you ask the question, how does God accomplish our union with Christ? The real answer to that question is giving the Spirit. So that we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Christ in us, quite literally. And so we have life in the Spirit and that means we become the sort of generous, sacrificially giving person that he is in the here and now. That's a growing process, apparently. And then in the, in the future, if I die, I will be with him. And when he comes, we all will be with him in eternity. Now the thing, the cool thing about this passage in 1 John is it tells us how that future pays forward. It says, everyone who has this hope, this future-oriented faith fixed on him, this expectation that when he comes we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is, 
Everyone who has this hope purifies himself now, just as he is pure. In other words, this compelled imitation of Christ that will happen when we see him can already happen. We purify ourselves in imitation of him. Whatever, to whatever extent we have a clear understanding, vision, you could say, of Christ, we become like him. This is what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3 when he says, I want to know him above everything else. I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to the image of his death. So, Jesus comes then to this At the, at the end of this section about and that they may be with me where I am, he says, Father, I desire also <clears throat> that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. This all comes back around to this concept of glory, this the, the, the glory of the triune God in their rejoicing in their mutual greatness. And so we rejoice in God's greatness, in his deliverance, in our union with him. And when we are with him, we see his glory. If you read Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you've been saved, by grace you've been saved, by grace you've been saved, I think it says it three times. It has a purpose in that chapter to the praise of his glory. God doesn't just save us so that we'll be saved. He saves us to show himself in a way that we see and appreciate glory. It always comes back to glory that they may see my glory. So when Jesus prays, for us. It's kind of an unexpected thing. He's not praying that we would become better people or more obedient to God's law. He doesn't even mention God's law. What does he pray for? With, with, with. It's just kind of what John was talking about in John 15. Abide in me. You abide in me, and my words abide in me. This mutual dwelling, indwelling, is the thing. It's the thing. Now, that, I expect, will produce all kinds of changes. It does produce life in the Spirit, a life which exhibits sacrificial love, which the law is summarized by. And so I will become truthful if I become loving. I will, if I'm in union with Christ, I will begin to exhibit the nature of Christ, which is righteous. But the thing itself is our oneness, our union with Him, our union with the Father in the Son, by the Spirit, and so with one another. And that's what First John is talking about. He says, our fellowship, you'll have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son. So the body of Christ now, when you think about that phrase, the body of Christ, in terms of union, it sort of changes what you think of a little bit. The body of Christ is here to exhibit not just unity, not just agreement, not just working together, not just cooperation, 
but actual union with the living God in Christ by the Spirit. That's kind of a high calling. And the Lord sees to it. Remember what I said. Jesus didn't ask us to do this. He didn't preach to the disciples, hey, you all, be one like me and the Father are one. He didn't say that. He said, Father, may they be. Who's going to do this? Now, we're going to be involved, obviously. And we can facilitate, this scripture says in Ephesians 4, yeah, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is how we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. <laughs> uh, so we're involved, we act, we obey, we do things, but who's doing it? Jesus didn't ask us to do it, he asked the Father to do it. Well, praise the Lord that he will see to that, and we will experience the blessing of being a part of it. I'm going to stop there. So, <laughs> any questions or comments, points you want to discuss? Can you do that with 20 words or less? <laughs> well, I'm not counting. <laughs> How about, well, less than 10? Fellowship with God in Christ by the Spirit is heaven. Oh, and it includes each other. I should, I, I should mention that. Fellowship with one another, fellowship together with God in Christ by the Spirit is heaven. Uh, I was really struck as you started with the This makes me think of 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul uses the term, the love of Christ compels us. <laughs> the love of Christ, well, this translation says controls, but compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we don't see anyone according to the flesh. We used to know Christ according to the flesh. Now we know him according to the flesh no longer. He's saying, in Christ changes how I see everyone. Uh, and it's compelled by the love of Christ. So his love makes me love him. And, it, and it's, it's the life which I now live in the flesh. It's 
I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then I, he loves people in me. Yeah. Right. Right. He wants to go on showing Christ. Yeah. Right. Right. So to live is Christ. Yeah. To me, that's always been the 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 tricky bit in that text. To live is Christ. What's he mean? Well, he means Galatians 2.20. He means the life that goes on serving the body of Christ, loving people, exhibiting the nature of Christ, getting to know Christ by trying to love like Christ. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for this great word of being united to our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your grace operating in our lives. Lord, uh, we do ask for the ministry of the Spirit to make that uh, more and more evident to us and in us and through us uh, toward others. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.